when we as citizens cannot do very much about what's happening in Afghanistan and are already living a lot of personal stress, you know, I have to ask myself, like, why is it worth spending time here and with our people talking about Afghanistan. We spent 20 years there. The American public has reached a real consensus on its desire to not be there militarily anymore. And for me, the answer is that Afghanistan has a lot to teach us about how we view the rest of the world. This is Sarah. And Beth, you're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are so happy to be here with you today. We're going to talk about what we're hearing from all of you, both good and bad, as the Delta variant continues to dominate across the country. For our main segment, we're going to talk about the fall of Afghanistan and share some of our recent conversation with Amy McGrath, who did a tour in Afghanistan and recently wrote about her experience and much more in her memoir, Honor Bound. And as always, we're going to close out the show with what's on our mind outside of politics. Now, fun fact, we've actually been closing out the show in a fun new way the past few weeks, but realized we forgot to tell most of you. The outtakes were such a hit during our infrastructure series that we decided to keep them. So if you listen through all the way to the end of Pantsuit Politics, you're going to start hearing some fun, weird, often involving our children or dogs outtakes. So check it out. Probably an unfortunately apt segue into talking about COVID-19 and the Delta variant, is mentioning that we still have a live show scheduled in Waco, Texas in late September. Now, we had really hoped that we'd all be vaccinated. We'd get together. It'd be a lot of fun. We wouldn't have to even think about Delta as we gathered uh, for the first and only time as a community in 2021. Alas, there's a lot of concern around this. We are in constant conversation among ourselves about what the responsible next step is. We know that many of you have bought tickets, have made travel arrangements, have booked hotels and flights. We really badly want to be in community with you as long as it's safe to do so. And so as a first step, we have decided to implement a mask requirement for the show. So if you come to gather with us, you will be asked to wear a mask for the entirety of the experience. And we really appreciate your cooperation with this. And we'll keep you updated if anything changes. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. 
It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Thank you so much to all of you who shared your own stories of the great resignation after Friday's show. Hearing your stories about career changes or life changes, moving, hearing how this sort of cultural conversation is impacting individuals is always so incredibly helpful. And we love hearing from you about how something we talk about on the show is playing out in your real lives. So keep those messages coming all the time. And those messages have also been very encouraging as we've heard from you about people who have been against getting a vaccine and have come around. We have had several of our members on Patreon share stories about a coworker who was anti-vax and then recently got vaccinated and parents who are now getting their first shot after physicians ask them lovingly to get vaccinated. And Sarah, you have your own personal success stories in this category, too. Yes, my dad got his first vaccine shot last night. I'm like tearing up a little bit. It was, you know, look, it was a heartbreaking turn of events. He had a really close friend die, a friend he was texting with from the hospital, pass away really quickly. And we started talking about it and we started talking about how Delta was different. And he said, I think I'm going to go get the vaccine. And so he went and got it yesterday. I spent a long time on the phone with my brother. I think I'm shifting slowly and convincing to get the vaccine. And I think what's most encouraging, not just about my dad, but the people we've heard that are getting vaccinated from our patrons is like, these are not hesitant people. These are not people that we're waiting to see. These were people who were passionately anti-vaccine. And, you know, the heartbreaking side of the story is that so many of them witness people in their own lives die in really tragic, awful ways. And it, you know, brought the reality of Delta in particular home in ways that were just unignorable, right? In that 
all of a sudden, something they felt so passionately, you know, the the information changed. I love the tweet that went around that was like, I'm so proud of the people who are changing their minds because that's a hard thing to do. And I think part of it is that Delta is so differently. Like I said, I think it's even linguistically that we've started calling it Delta. It just gives that confirmation bias enough room to exit the space and let people go in a new direction. I wish it did not take the tragic deaths of so many Americans to really to move that group. But for better or for worse, that is the reality. And I'm still going to celebrate those vaccinations, especially my own father's. I think it's also good to recognize that a lot of people who are in the hesitant category have moved firmly into the pro-vaccine category now. If you mm-hmm. look at the political numbers, the mood of the country is really in a different place than it was several months ago. I was reading a newsletter from Tim Miller this morning of The Bulwark, and he said, you know, 70 percent of Americans have gotten at least one dose of the vaccine at this point. Fifty six percent of all Americans support vaccine mandates by employers. That's a 24-point margin over the 32% who oppose them. That's really, really big. Kaiser asked whether the federal government should recommend employers requiring vaccines, and over half of all Democrats and Republicans agreed with doing that. Wow. So we've got a real consensus across the aisle at this point on the fact that vaccines are good, they are important, we need them. It's not enough in terms of the numbers to help us public health-wise say we're, we're nearing the end of this, but having the political will to approach it differently is a very big deal. Absolutely. And I'm so thrilled to see those shifts. Now, listen, the other thing we are hearing from all of you is that it's not just a positive story out there in your communities and that these mask mandates and that the employer mandates are being met with some very passionate resistance, even violent resistance, as we saw in Los Angeles County. And I think this is really, really difficult. You know, yesterday my mom said, well, did you watch the video from Franklin, Tennessee, in the Board of Education meeting? And that was after I saw someone else mention the bad behavior at the Franklin, Tennessee Board of Education meeting on Facebook. And I said, you know what? No, I'm not going to watch it. Because I don't really think we're built to witness the bad behavior coming from communities across the country. And what I mean by that is, like, in the same way with the Olympics, I don't think one person is supposed to shoulder the pressure or a global audience. There's a part of me that's like, I don't think we're built to watch people act ugly from Maine to Mississippi to Montana to California, right? Like, I just, it's not good for us. I think the best thing we can do is, you know, stay focused on the bad behavior in our own backyards and what, if anything, we can do to support our own local school boards and our own local commissions or county governments. Because I just think it it is depressing and anxiety-inducing And especially where it's in a community where you have little to no say or control. And that's not to be like an ostrich and bury your head in the ground. I just think we have to think, like, why am I watching this? Why do I need to see people act terribly to the Board of Education in Franklin, Tennessee? Like, what information am I going to take from that? What can I do about it? I just think that that 
you know, watching all that because it, it, it amplifies the voices that are already loud enough. You know, it always bugs me when that loud 20 percent describes themselves as the silent majority because they're not a majority and they're not silent. So, you know, I just think it amplifies voices that are already loud enough when we watch it and we give it our attention and we give it our anxiety and we give it our energy and fear. And so I'm just I'm not going to watch any more of that. I'm going to focus on I got a school board meeting in my own community that I'm going to pay attention to and do what I can to support the school board. And I'm not going to watch, you know, I tell my mom, I didn't watch Girls Gone Wild. I'm not going to watch these Board of Education meetings across the United States or the mask mandate protest or the employer mandate protest. I'm just I'm not going to do it. I think that what you see and I haven't watched that particular school board meeting, but I have watched school board meetings in my community And I think what you see is very predictable. I don't think you're Mm going to learn new information. I think we Mm -hmm. all have a pretty robust understanding post-January 6th of what a very small but very, very loud minority of Americans want for this country. And I think that should be taken in and grappled with to the extent that it's motivating. Mm -hmm. So like you said, motivating to engage more in your place where you have a voice and can be effective. And I think motivating in the really small ways of just sending a note to the principal or the CEO of your company who made a difficult call about mask or vaccine requirements or your local restaurant, the way they're handling COVID-19 or you know, your local yoga studio, like wherever you see someone trying really hard to navigate tough decisions, giving them a little bit of encouragement. I think that's a really effective way to do your part in countering that very small but very loud minority. And it just helps to remember that like that group existed long before they could Facebook live stream. Yep. And so we don't have to give them the the oxygen of attention that they're looking for. That's it. I just want to, you know, not to use a metaphor that's probably not exactly great in the middle of a respiratory virus, but I do. I do want to deprive that of oxygen. And I think we can do it in lots of ways in our own communities without, like, going to the board meetings. You know, I'm so proud of my mom recently. She just keeps talking about how she's learned to say, well, I don't agree with that. Or not everybody feels that way. Just that's it. She doesn't engage in, like, intense policy discussion, but she's in it. You know, she's like me. She's got a diverse group of friends, lots of people out there, and she's just learned to say, well, not everybody feels that way. I don't feel that way. I don't agree with you. And just move on. It doesn't have to, you know, if you're an Enneagram 9 or a peacemaker or you hate confrontation, it doesn't always have to be confrontation. It can just be that small amount of disruption, that small amount of social pressure that says, do not think that everyone agrees with you. Because that's what fuels that fire is when they feel like they're righteous because they're on the side of the majority And I just think that when we can do and what we can do, however small, to disrupt that narrative in our own heads and not only in our own heads and for those people, but for everybody listening and paying attention, be it in a Facebook thread or at a dinner party to say, oh, good, because I didn't feel that way either, but I didn't want to say anything. And now I know somebody else doesn't feel that way either. As opposed to just bemoaning the state of the world, talking about how awful people are. Look, we all know that before the pandemic, People could be jerks. People could be violent jerks. And we know after the pandemic that people are stretched even more thin, thinly and that they are stressed. You know, I was talking to my dad and he was he was telling me this this awful story of something that happened to one of my, my cousin's friends. And I said, 
well, why did he do it? And he said, because people are crazy right now. (laughs) And I was like, you know, I think we all know that deep down, that there is just this undercurrent of stress and frustration and anger. And it's like, we don't, again, we don't need to watch more videos to prove that to ourselves. We already know that's true. To me, that leads to not only anxiety and fear, but like cynicism and resignation. And that's definitely not going to help. So as much as I can, I'm, I'm trying to do in my personal life what we're trying to do here on the show. Let's focus on the positive. Let's focus on opportunities for optimism while still acknowledging our grief and doing what we can without feeding that need to just burrow into our anxiety and to the frustration and disempowerment from watching our our fellow citizens behave badly. I love that from your mom because so many people in my life who are most deeply ingrained in sort of the OAN Fox Breitbart bubble are really shocked to hear that someone disagrees with them. Like they genuinely are shocked that someone who lives near them, whose kids go to school with them, yep, whatever, disagrees. So that that little act, I think, is really effective. What I think is challenging, and I've been really curious about your thoughts on this, Sarah, is that I think for people who are like very, very far from other humans who actually feel this way, you know, because we live in areas that expose us to more people who are anti-vax than a lot of people who are listening right now. And I think for people who aren't kind of engaged daily in how do I talk to them? How do I bring them along? How do I keep my relationships intact with them? There is so much desire for some accountability, for some accountability for people not doing their part to help with this crisis, for accountability for all of the death, for all of the economic suffering, for the psychological suffering, accountability for the way people are acting out in these anti-mask, anti-vax places. And I totally get that and have no good answers for them. And like the only thing that I know, I've had a few conversations with people in my life about someone and different people that we know who are like out living their best lives as though Delta doesn't exist, as though COVID never has. And occasionally I'll hear something like, you know, I'm almost going to be mad if they don't get it at this point because they deserve it because the way Mm -hmm. they've acted about this. And I am totally sympathetic to that perspective, and I can even feel it in myself sometimes. And I also just try to stop and say, Beth, that's another disease that is infecting you. Like, don't allow yourself to be taken over this way. That's so bad for you. But I don't know the line between wishing for some accountability in a totally justifiable way and going to that really bitter space. Well, I'm an Enneagram one, so I'm highly motivated by justice. I want people to suffer the consequences when they act ugly. Let me state that as clearly as I can. And look, some people are. These employer mandates, people are going to lose their jobs, period. We've had several teachers walk off the job because they don't want to wear a mask in our school systems locally. So they're going to have consequences. You know, that's what I had to teach myself as a parent. The best accountability comes from natural consequences. And also, a lot of time people are terrible humans, and they suffer no natural consequences. That is the reality. And we should all know that because we lived through four years of the Trump presidency. And we understand this man's biography very well. But at the end of the day, I think I also have learned or tried to accept that the consequences come even if they're not what I want them to be. 
And what I mean by that is I want something concrete, but often if the concrete consequences never come, the spiritual, the moral, the ethical, the psychological consequences are their own prison. Over the weekend, I was reading a Vanity Fair article Aaron Moon recommended about Doris Duke and how they've reopened this investigation because she basically mowed this man who worked for her who wanted to leave down and killed him. And there was actually a paper boy, 13-year-old paper boy, who witnessed it. And I thought, I I got in this space where I thought, and then she got to live in her 80s, having murdered somebody and living in these mansions across the world in Hawaii and hobnobbing with all these people. And then I remembered that I know enough about Doris Duke's biography to know I wouldn't have switched places for all the world. She was a miserable person and clearly made everyone around her miserable, too. And that's its own consequence, right? And I think anyone acting this way, just boiling over with rage and frustration, doesn't need the natural consequences as I define them because the accountability will come through the psychic prison that they have created for themselves. And like for me, I had to decide, do I want to join them in that prison and become hardened and angry that they aren't getting what I think they deserve? And I didn't, and I still don't. And I have to accept that, like, some of it I will never see. Some of it will seem like they're never sort of getting what they deserve. But I just, you know, the the impact on my own life was that I can stay soft and not harden and just trust that, you know, if the natural consequences don't come, those psychic ones will. Consequences seems like an apt and incredibly brutal transition into our conversation about the fall of Afghanistan. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. 
The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. For any of you who weren't consumed by the news coverage over the weekend, the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban's resurgence took place on a much more accelerated timeline than many people anticipated. The Taliban took province after province after province and then came to Kabul. The president of Afghanistan left the country. The government negotiated a handover of power to the Taliban, and so now they are in power in Afghanistan. There were brutal images of citizens of Kabul desperately trying to flee, desperately trying to get to the airport where the United States military and embassy employees were either exiting or directing the exit, I mean, to the point where people were literally holding on to the airplanes as they took off, losing their grip and falling to their death. Just brutal, brutal imagery coming out of the country this weekend. I think it's hard to know what to talk about on the show right now because there's so much going on in the world. You know, as we are recording today, we have people listening who are very, very worried about loved ones in Haiti following a terrible earthquake and in a time that was already completely unstable for Haiti. We have people in the United States dealing with water issues and uh, smoke-filled air and uh, burying people they love because of the Delta variant. Um, There's so much going on all over the world that it would be impossible to list everything. And so when we as citizens cannot do very much about what's happening in Afghanistan and are already living a lot of personal stress You know, I have to ask myself, like, why is it worth spending time here and with our people talking about Afghanistan? 
We spent 20 years there. The American public has reached a real consensus on its desire to not be there militarily anymore. And for me, the answer is that Afghanistan has a lot to teach us about how we view the rest of the world. And it has a lot to teach us about our system of government and its failures. Because to me, at every step along the path from 9-11 forward, we can just clearly see the absence of clarity. You know, we can see the absence of a coherent strategy about what we're trying to accomplish, what our limitations are in trying to accomplish that, and what we're willing to sacrifice in service of what. I think one of the best takes that I've read of this entire situation is that the American military with our NATO allies, which hung together remarkably Mm -hmm. over such a long period of time, the American military accomplished everything it realistically could have been expected to accomplish. And it accomplished more than everything it could have realistically been expected to accomplish. Some of the data on what has happened over the past 20 years in Afghanistan is remarkable. Infant mortality is down. Education is up. Life expectancy is up. Electricity consumption is up. Like all these markers of standards of living increasing have improved. And then as you sit back as a citizen and think, if an American president stood in front of us and said, we are going to have some military presence in another country for 20 years, and here's what the cost of that will be, and here's what the death toll will look like, and these kinds of things are going to happen. The standard of living for people there is going to dramatically improve. Women and girls are going to get to go to school and have careers. You know, people aren't going to just be summarily executed in the streets. So many things. Would we have, a, as a public, have said, sounds good, we're in for that? And I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know what the answer should be. And I think that makes it worth talking about just as citizens. I think there are several layers of this conversation, which is why it is incredibly complicated to have. I think, you know, the 50,000-foot view is what has the West been trying to do in Afghanistan? I got so frustrated that people kept saying, well, this was a 20-year experiment. No, this is a 200-year experiment. The first Anglo-Afghan war was in 1839. 1839. The British were in Afghanistan. The Russians we're in Afghanistan and now us. And so I think for me what you know the 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 big big macro question is what are western democracies trying to do in Afghanistan and around the world and I think that conversation is stuck in World War II. And that's not the world we live in anymore. You know I was looking up statistics about the difference between World War II and now and it's not just like there were fewer countries. There were also a fourth of the amount of people. The world's population was about 2 billion in 1930. Now it's almost eight. You know, I think that we're stuck in this vision of we went in, we prevented atrocities, or we at least stopped atrocities. And then we did produce democracies. I mean, Japan went from a monarchy to a democracy. And we're stuck there, even though the world is radically different. 
And I feel like so many of the conversations around Afghanistan and whether we should stay, whether we should go back, what were we doing there, definitely when we went there in the first place, we're under that rubric. And I just wish we could abandon it. Because if we're talking about atrocities, the list is long. I would love to see an end to the suffering of the people of Guatemala, Venezuela, the Uyghur people in China, the people of Haiti. And so it just feels like, why do we keep talking as if we're going to go in World War II style and help people? I just, I'm so frustrated by that framework when it is so clearly not relevant anymore. I think that's right. And I think it's incredibly hard to get people's attention turned to that, especially because we don't have a very robust understanding of history. The average mm-hmm. person, what they could tell you about World War II even is quite limited. And I think they could probably tell you more about World War II than they could tell you about every war we fought since then. You know, we haven't wanted to have a real conversation about Vietnam, broadly speaking. We haven't really dissected even successful operations like Desert Storm to say, what was this for and what did it cost and was that cost worth it and to whom? For whom is it worth doing? You know, I have been heartbroken along with, I think, many of you watching the images coming out of Afghanistan. And I have real questions about the way that we have withdrawn and the planning and and more than anything, what the White House has told the American people about this process, I'm, I'm pretty upset because I think that very little of what's happened over the past two weeks is surprising to anyone who's paid any attention to Afghanistan. I read a report from an inspector general to Congress for the first quarter of this year that pretty well predicted what we've seen unfold. And so the idea that this was going to be pretty smooth and okay, I think, uh, reflects less candor with the American people and more the White House's hope that they would continue doing what they've done really well to this point, which is say, we're going to take actions that are broadly politically popular in the country. Mm -hmm. Broadly, the American people went out of Afghanistan. We're going to get out of Afghanistan. And on the other side of that, people will be happy that we did so. And they probably won't know or care too much about what happened in the process of getting us out. And I I think that's the calculus. and, And that makes me upset. It also makes me upset, though, that it's being reported with such a personal lens on this White House Mm -hmm. when everything that's happened over the past two weeks, in part, was squeezed. Like the, the options this White House has were really compressed by the deal the Trump administration made with the Taliban. And remember, the Trump administration dealt with the Taliban, not with the Afghan government that we spent $88 billion to train forces yep. to protect. Right. Yep. We, we spent 20 years and all this money trying to train forces to protect a government that the American government last year cut out of negotiations about the future of that country. Like that to me erases all pretense of, well, this is shocking. I can't believe how this has gone down. You can't because a year ago, the administration said it's not even worth chatting with the president of Afghanistan as we make decisions about the future. The Taliban is the is the strength in this country. I think that's right. I think the big macro view of what are Western democracies, because it's not just the United States that's been in Afghanistan for 20 years. The next logical level is like our government, our government's role, 
Congress, the president, the past administrations. You know, I am so frustrated. (laughs) I keep trying to remind myself throughout this entire sort of situation that anger is a secondary emotion because I feel a great deal of anger. I'm so frustrated that we're focusing on the last, you know, two weeks of decision-making or six months of decision-making. You know, look, I'd like to have a conversation with President Biden. I'd like to have it about the decisions he made as a senator 20 years ago to go there in the first place. To me, that is the, if we all want to talk about the shame and embarrassment of the fall in Afghanistan, then I want to go back to 2001. I've talked about this on the show before. I was in a political science class. It was our senior seminar, and we spent so much time talking about this exact thing happening in Afghanistan based on everything that happened in the United States to that point. But guess what? That war was extraordinarily popular, very popular. And we allowed our representatives to not only support that action, but to continue to fund it, to continue to leave those war authorizations in place for two decades. And so we don't get to hold our political leadership to account without taking a hard look in the mirror ourselves. And that, to me, is what's so frustrating to even call back to Vietnam or to even call back to, you know, previous engagements and not have a conversation about how we keep doing the same thing and expecting it to be quick and easy and be based on a volunteer military is so frustrating to me. Look, again, I have a long list of populations across the globe that are suffering that I would like to see an end to it. But we're not going to get to that with a volunteer military. We didn't in World War II. We didn't even in Vietnam. There was a draft. And I just think, like, we don't want to have—we want to feel good about our presence in the world with no sacrifices or sacrifices on the base of the military community that are hidden from us. And that's what makes me so— angry. And as we have this conversation, be it about the Biden administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, Congress over the last 20 years, you know, what's so important to us is to include the voices of veterans. We recently sat down with a friend of the show, Amy McGrath. We've had her on previously to talk about her runs for the House of Representatives and the Senate here in our home state of Kentucky. But why we thought it was so important to include her voice here today is because she is also a decorated Marine veteran, and she served tours of duty in both Afghanistan and Iraq. And when we sit down with her, we asked her how she felt about the drawdown of troops in Afghanistan. It's not black and white. The people there, you know, they're not your your enemy, and they're not your your friend. They're survivors, and they will be with you if it helps them survive, and they will be against you if it helps them and their family to survive. It's not personal. And they don't care so much about a Jeffersonian democracy. They want to survive. And so you have to, it's just very sort of primitive in that way. Um, And so while I personally feel like I want the Afghan women to have, to be able to read, I want them to get educated. I want them to have equal rights, you know, rights at all. Um, I want a democracy to happen and for, for the people there to have freedom. At the same time, I just, it, it's such a different culture than our culture. I really realized that, you know, we all want to say the Taliban this and the Taliban's bad, but a lot of times when you go there, you talk to people and it's, the Taliban is it, it's just ingrained in their culture. 
it's like I always try to tell my Marines, I was like, it's like Yankees fans. I mean, they're, they're, they're not, 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 I'm trying to make a headline here. I'm just trying to say that everybody in America knows somebody who likes the Yankees. Yeah. You know, or around here, the Reds. Everybody either likes the Reds or knows somebody that likes the Reds. You know, or they somebody wears a red hat, you know. Around there, it's it's like everybody either likes the Taliban or knows somebody. So, you know, they're in your family. Okay? And you can't ever really get away from it. And it's and it's just part of the culture. And so I don't know if we can really change that. And so when my, as I wrote about in my book, when I, my friend who I had worked with for many months, right next to every day, as close as we are every single day, um, died, it was shot down. Um, I couldn't tell you why he died. I wanted to, I sat there thinking, you know, well, he died for this, or he died for this. I, I, I just didn't know. And that's when I realized, what are we doing here? What, what are we doing here? Because at the time, we were supposed to build up the Afghan National Police and the National Army, but they, we weren't really building them up. And then we were providing security for, for Helmand Province, at the same time knowing that as soon as we left, it would just go back to where, the way it was. We all knew this. And there, and then my, my friend died. And I'm like, why? And so it, it's, it's such a, I have mixed feelings about it. I cannot um, fault a president, current president, for doing it. I think it needs to be done in a responsible manner. I feel very strongly about protecting the translators who uh, put their lives on the line, not just for months, but for years and their families' lives. They will literally be the first ones to have their heads left off. And we have a responsibility not only to them, but to future, for future conflicts in a strategic way to make sure that we protect the people that we said we would protect. When we first went into Helmand province in 2009 and 10, there were a lot of people that were saying, why are we here? You know, the Helmand province is in the, in the southwest corner of Afghanistan. And it was like we had we had sort of secured the Kabul area in the northeast corner, and all of a sudden we jumped down to the southwest, and people were like, why are we here? So it was, it was sort of disjointed um, even 10 years ago as to what we were doing um, and why. And, you know, I, my, my friend Natalia, who I talked about in the book, um, worked at Camp Bastion. She was a medical administrator for the, the hospital there. And she saw much, much more than I was. And um, just being with her and seeing the sort of despair when I would go to visit her, I was in more of the operations and she was seeing the operations. And I just, you know, I came away with that tour thinking, I never want to go back. I'm not sure why we're there. I think it was helpful to hear this from Amy about the Taliban, and it's helpful to remember, and this is something that I think, going back to your point about the initial decision to go into Afghanistan and how popular that was. Of course it was popular. This is kind of like to to the question I asked you about accountability around COVID-19. The American public wanted accountability, understandably, for 9-11 and wanted to make sure it wasn't going to happen again. And I think 
one of the initial mistakes had to be that we did not fully grasp the relationship between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. And we didn't fully grasp that the Taliban, you know, in the early 90s, were kind of welcomed by the people of Afghanistan because they brought some stability and order to a place that had seen decades of conflict and corruption and overreach by anyone leading it. And so Amy's perspective, where she explains that it's all about survival instead mm-hmm. of friends and enemies, and that the Taliban is so woven into Afghan culture now, I think is important. It also helped me to read accounts of the relationship between the Taliban and al-Qaeda, although it has had some serious stress points growing over the last 20 years, and that even as Taliban leaders were meeting with U.S. officials last year promising that they would not give safe harbor to terrorists, al-Qaeda was in the background like coaching them on how to handle those negotiations. Mm. There has just been, I think, a great deal of hubris by civilian leaders in making decisions about Afghanistan that misunderstand the culture there and and not I don't want to say that in a way that furthers that sense of like those people over there have been fighting since the beginning of time and will fight till the end of time. I think that's gross. It's something that I grew up hearing about Western Asia. I think it creates some terrible instincts and and a lot of unnecessary hatred and bigotry mm. in our country. So I don't mean to say it in that sense. What I mean to say is we think we're helping a lot when we actually don't know how to help. And to me, that's like the civilian perspective that I want to bring into these discussions. What What does help actually look like? And are we, when we ask our military to make tremendous sacrifice to help, being realistic and honest, what would actually be helpful? Well, we want it both ways, though. We're not just going to help. We're going to help and support our own interests, or else no political leader would try to sell it to the American public. We're we're trying to dance this, this dance where we're doing the right thing, but it's also the right thing for us. And I'd really like us to stop. That's why I'm so mad. I want us to stop. We owe it to the members of our community and the military families who are sacrificing so much. Be honest with all of us. Tell us why we're there. Because I don't really think the American government or political leaders ever do anything just to help. And that's not to say, like, they're cynical, awful people, because often helping is in our interest. It stabilizes parts of the world. It protects us from, you know, groups or leaders that we don't want to take advantage of a terrible situation and gain power. But again, it's a big, complicated globe. And there's a part of me that thinks, do we all just need to acknowledge That this story we have about America going in and helping and stabilizing and spreading democracy is just no longer a relevant goal. It's too big. It's too complicated. And we've all seen us turn around in the face of massive atrocities. And I don't just mean in communities. I mean the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And we've done what about that exactly? Again, the genocide of the Uyghur people. I just— because it's and it's not because we're bad. 
It's because what we can do is limited. And maybe that's the hard truth we don't want to accept. There are lots of veterans, many of whom I really respect. David French wrote a piece basically saying we have a duty to protect under this this framework set up. And I thought, this seems so dated to me. This duty to protect because what, we've been there before? Where have we not been? Where have we not inserted ourselves and changed the course of history? Can someone tell me a nation where that is not true at this point in 2021? And so what exactly does that mean now? Does it mean we go everywhere? I'm not trying to be isolationist. I just want us to have an honest conversation because people's lives are affected there and here. Military families make sacrifices and they do help. For 20 years, they did improve many of the lives in Afghanistan, but they're not in charge. They're not strategizing. They're not making these calls. They're not leading the American people through an honest and transparent conversation about what we ask our volunteer military to do. And it's just frustrating. It makes me so mad because there is so much suffering and there is so much death and there is so much waste. The Afghan government was filled with corruption. A lot of the money we poured over there went to them. It didn't do anything except for line their pockets. How exactly is a military presence supposed to get at issues like corruption? Help me understand. Help me understand how that's supposed to help anything. I have such contradictory thoughts and feelings about all of this because, on the one hand, I agree with you that we can't just protect everywhere. We Like, we just... We can't. It would be foolish to try, and we don't even know what that means in a coherent way. And yet, I struggle when someone like Assad in Syria uses chemical weapons against his people. And I think about, what if that were happening here? Would I want... Would I want our NATO allies to have a conversation that's like, well, we can't save the whole world. You know what I mean? They're going to have to fend for themselves over in Kentucky. It's just not not on our that's not part of our watch. We got enough to do to protect our people here. No, I wouldn't. And so I I struggle with what is our obligation, especially to people. uh, And this gets to Amy's point, too, about especially to people who've helped us there. I think about this all the time with the Kurds. You know, we are in a bad pattern right now as as the United States of America, not the fault of any person, any individual who served in our military of deciding we're going to leave somewhere and really leaving a mess behind us and a a dangerous, brutal situation for people who have gone out of their way in tremendous acts of courage and at great personal cost to help us. And I think that's wrong. And I don't know what to do about that. And to your point about an honest, transparent conversation, I totally agree. And at the same time, it seems to me one of the big mistakes that has been made here in Afghanistan is being too vocal about exactly when we'd be leaving on exactly what timetable we would be drawing troops down. Because you see, like in a lot of the reporting that we took Whatever little bit of morale existed among Afghan security forces, and there wasn't much to begin with, because to your point, the Afghan government has not cared about them. It has not sent them enough food. It's not given them enough rest. They've had people on the payroll who don't actually exist. We don't have 300,000 Afghan security forces. It's nothing like that. So you take that terrible situation, and then America starts saying, like, yeah, we're going to be out of there by 9-11, 
of this year, 20 years is enough, the morale went down the tank. And they thought, if the United States isn't willing to invest this anymore, why should I invest in this anymore? Is it worth dying for this government that the United States has written off? And I totally understand that. And so I say all of that just to say I have tremendous grace for people who are making these decisions. And I have tremendous personal conflict over what the guiding principles ought to be and what process they ought to go through. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's difficult. Listen, you and I had this debate before we ever started Pantsu Politics on my blog, what, six years ago about Syria. And I said, I think we were on opposite sides. I think I was the one saying, if it was me, I would want someone to come to our defense. And I still feel that way. But guess what we didn't do about the chemical defense in Syria? Nothing. Guess who's still in power seven years later? Assad. So, like, I just feel like, I think we've made the choice, and we just need to own it. I feel like the American people and other Western democracies have made the choice. We talk a lot about World War II, but we're not going to do that again. We're not going to call up the draft and, and, and call hundreds of thousands of our fellow citizens into danger no matter what. We've seen really terrible situations in Syria, in Venezuela. In with the Uyghurs in China. I mean, again, in Haiti, where do you want me to go? Like, we've seen it and we've decided. So why do we not just own that? Why do we keep wringing our hands and being frustrated when we're not calling for that politically? I don't like any of the choices that Congress or any of the administrations have made about these places. But they have really not been called to account. I mean, I... I I say that, and I I can see that in many ways we have. We said we don't want that anymore. We don't want that. And so in some ways, there's been political account, right? Donald Trump gained a lot of political power through calling for an end to our presence in Iraq and Afghanistan. Make no mistake about it. So in some ways, I mean, we have created political pressure, but it's always about draw it down, spend less money, get out of there. It's never about go in, except for if it's to defend us or to to make that accountability. It's never about spreading Western democracy or helping people. I think we don't own it because we only sort of have accountability, because there aren't Mm -hmm. any clear processes around decision making. If this Congress had to take an up or down vote on drawing down troops from Afghanistan, I don't know how that vote would have ended. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether that process would have harmed our troops and harmed people operating in Afghanistan, doing humanitarian work, doing all of the work that people in Afghanistan have been doing diplomatically and otherwise, or if it would have helped them. I could see where there are members of Congress who serve in this conflict, right, and who probably have valuable things to add to the administration's thought process that maybe haven't had a chance to do so. But Congress doesn't take an up or down vote on anything related to military action at this point, including the decision to go to war. And that's another thing we wanted to talk to Amy about while we had her in this setting to discuss her book. We asked her about this effort underway in the Senate to revoke the war authorizations that went into effect at the beginning of this conflict. And here's what she said. We had two war authorizations since 9-11. The first one was the one right after 9-11, which authorized the United States to go after al-Qaeda and any associated forces around the world. That's kind of your your global war on terror, Afghanistan, go get them. And then the Iraq one came about a month prior to the Iraq war in 2003. And that basically said you, you can go after Saddam Hussein. Um, for weapons of mass destruction. 
So here we are, and we still have that out there because it's the modern day declaration of war. Basically, we haven't declared war since uh, World War II. So that is the declaration of war, mm -hmm. and we haven't done anything about it. But basically, we've, we've given the president a blank check for the last twenty years. And Congress has punted its responsibility. It has not looked at these authorizations. It has not either reauthorized or stopped the wars. It's basically just said to the president, you know, you're free for all. And my feeling about it is, one, of course, it's against our Constitution, Article 1, Section 8. And I think the founders had it right that they believed that Congress should be the, the responsible body to determine whether we should use, use force or not around the world. And then the president, as the executive and as the commander-in-chief, can then determine, by and large, how do we do that? How do we execute this work? I feel like with Congress not doing its job, it's basically, it, it disconnects the American people even more from the wars that we're fighting. Because when Congress does its job and it actually debates things, it gets in the news. And they have to, they have to own up to their votes. To you, okay? And when Congress punts that to the president, they can just, they don't ever have to own up to it. They don't ever have to say I voted up or down. They don't ever have to say that they voted to extend the Afghanistan uh, conflict, and here we are 20 years later. They don't ever have to say, hey, I want, you know, I want to up or down on Iraq. And I just think that's a problem. If you can't make those types of votes, you should not be in Congress. And that was one of the things that was important to me running, that I always wanted to see Congress do. I would have absolutely forced my fellow members of Congress to, to vote up or down on these things. Because it forces us to talk about it. You know, it forces the American public. And if we're not willing to talk about it, we shouldn't have men and women out there dying in places like Libya and Somalia and Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan. So that's my thought. And I think her conclusion is what struck me. And I think that's what I keep thinking about. Because we don't know how a vote in Congress would go to draw down troops in Afghanistan. But I know exactly how a vote in Congress would go to draw up a draft. I know exactly how that vote would go. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm frustrated that we keep asking it of the same people in our volunteer military. You know, we had somebody reach out on Instagram and say, check on your veteran friends, especially who those who served in Afghanistan. They are not okay. We had Katie Roselli, who's been on the show before, reach out and say, you know, stop saying this is our Vietnam, our generation's Vietnam. That's so hurtful and harmful to the people who made sacrifices for this. Again, so often hidden from the general public and shouldered totally and completely by veterans in the military community. And I'm just... I'm brokenhearted for them, and I'm done. I'm just done asking them to do the same thing over and over and over again and then hiding the consequences or ignoring the consequences or I just, I'm so brokenhearted for these people, for the people who served in Afghanistan, for the people who are over there right now because Congress won't do its job because the administrations don't want to spend the political capital to be honest with the American people and because the American people won't be honest with themselves. I'm just, I'm so, so angry on their behalf. I think what's really difficult about all of this is recognizing 
that it's not just military families who have suffered because of the conflict in Afghanistan. It's all of us in some way because mm-hmm. we are all connected and affected by what happens there. And what's happening in Afghanistan today is not only a terrible humanitarian tragedy on an individual level and a population-wide level in Afghanistan because of the reemergence of the Taliban and because of what we can only guess will be a return to the pre-9-11 status quo in Afghanistan. But it will also have ripple effects throughout the world. The, t- the emboldened Taliban, the Taliban that has had a propaganda field day because of the United States leaving, will likely recruit more members, could make a run at Pakistan. Pakistan that has been the the home and resting place for the Taliban could see them come in and, and cause conflict there. Pakistan, a nuclear state that has conflict with India. You know, the ramifications of this, just like the ramifications of having been there for 20 years, will be felt around the world for generations to come. And that would have been true no matter what President Biden and his administration decided to do here. At the same time, I think they've done it badly, and it's important to say that. Just because I generally think President Biden has done a good job and has been a good president, and just because I think that he had impossible choices with respect to Afghanistan, it is important to me to say the way that this exit has been conducted has been tremendously flawed. And I'm so sad about that and so sorry. And I understand your anger, Sarah. And I think I have a lot of just fear about what comes next around the world and for people who've served in Afghanistan because the the discussions that we're having, most of my anger is directed at members of Congress who are making political plays on this and members of the media who see a great opportunity to prove to the public just how objective they are about the Biden administration. Like, it's just going to hurt so many people in a situation where so many people are already hurting. I agree. You know, I have so much frustration with how this went, with how it's been covered. And my heart breaks not only for Americans and how they're affected, but the people of Afghanistan, the women and children of Afghanistan are going to suffer the most horrendous consequences because of the decisions they were not invited to participate in. And I think where I've come down on, one of the best sort of takes I've read over the last few days was someone said, at at this point, the best thing you can do is call your member of Congress and lobby for as many refugees as we need to let in, who helped us, who served us, and who maybe didn't, who maybe were just fighting for the vision they we presented to the people of Afghanistan as available to them. Women's education, girls' education, women's participation in politics, freedom of speech. Maybe that's not available within the geography of Afghanistan. Then the next best thing we can offer them is a place here. And I think that's where I'm coming when I say I want to to abandon this version of our participation in the world that came from World War II. I don't want to abandon our participation in the world, but it just feels like us going there never helps. So let's let people come here because we don't we've decided we don't want to do that either. And I'm done with that. When I say I don't want to be isolationist, I mean Let's welcome the suffering of the world. Let's welcome this long list of people 
that can't find life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness in their own land. And I don't think that means forever. Often, I think empowering people to come here, to make money, to fund efforts in their own homes makes a difference. They often return. They can fund political activities. They can think. They can disrupt from the safety of our shores. And if that's the best option available to us in the 21st century, then I want to talk about that, too. I want to let people come here. Well, and that's another place where I think the mood of the American public doesn't match the moment. And I think that Mm -hmm. it's a really difficult call when you talk about the authorization for the use of military force, when you talk about up or down votes in Congress to actually ensure that we're really making these decisions with political accountability. Sometimes the mood of the American public is going to get that wrong. And I don't know how much we're supposed to be guided in these massive world-changing decisions by what's politically popular versus by what people who study these issues and understand them well think is wise. Because if you said to the American public today or to Congress, should we invite 50 to 80,000 Afghans to come into our country, even if every single one of those families did something to help us in Afghanistan, I think the country would say no. And I think the country would say no pretty loudly. And that is a big problem because we cannot continue to create refugees in situations like this. And it's not just us, right? A lot of factors create refugees. But we can't continue as Americans to say they're going to have to go somewhere else. They're going to have to go to Qatar and UAE and Turkey and Kazakhstan. Like, we can't take all of those people here. When the truth is, like, by the numbers, we absolutely can. Mm -hmm. We absolutely can. Um, We just don't want to do that. And I think that's got to be another factor in our decision-making process. And, you know, when you think about... You keep going back to World War II, Sarah, and as you've been saying that, I've been thinking about, like, what are other truly global objectives like World War II? What would the equivalent of that today be? The only thing that I can think of is the world coming together to try to address the reality of climate change. But we have a totally different mentality about that because there's not an enemy, right? We are we are both the enemy and the, the opportunity to be heroic in that struggle. And that framework makes it really different than what we've been dealing with t- till now. But that is another area that the refugee theme is going to predominate for the next 20, 30 years because people are going to be refugees because of conflicts that we are not going to get involved in. And they're going to be refugees because of natural disasters and other parts of the world becoming uninhabitable. And so... Maybe if we're going to have a coherent, transparent public conversation in the United States, that's a good starting place. How do we feel about people coming to live here when, for whatever reason, where they have traditionally made their home is not safe for them anymore? It's back to what we were talking about before. The other scenario is we just harden. We don't want to go anywhere. We don't want to spend money. We don't want to make any sacrifices overseas, and we don't want anybody to come here. So we're we're held prisoner— by the fact that these influx of refugees are attempting to come here because of climate change, because of authoritarianism, because of oppression. And so we're just we're just hardening. We don't want to go out. We don't want to come in. And so we're in our own prison of our own damn making. 
And I just think that we need real leadership. I think you're right. I'd like to hear more honesty about from the Biden administration, even from before this moment, to say, like, here's our two bad options that that the political reality is. Which do you want to take, America? I'd like to present a third option that there's not a lot of political capital for, but I'd like, you know, to exhibit real leadership and lead us in a new direction and say, like, look around you. The way we've been doing things isn't working for us or for anyone else. And so we need to have a hard conversation about what we think the future should look like. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. 
15. politics today, we wanted to share another piece of our conversation with Amy McGrath. Beth, you asked that the best question. You asked Amy, how does it feel to have written a memoir when you have a lot of life in front of you? And we thought we'd share her answer. It feels good because I'm reading it to my kids. Not the youngest one because she doesn't do that. But my two older ones, including my seven-year-old, they are they are really into it. And, and so... It's fun because I know there's there's a there's a future. I don't know what that's going to be, but I feel like we put the chapter on that and that's okay, you know? And I've also found that the more and I think everybody should write a memoir mm-hmm. even if it's going to be published or not mm-hmm. because your kids, like yeah. your your family, I would have loved to I wish my dad would have written one because I would have loved to have read about his childhood and and the things that shaped him, I think it's it's a great thing to do. And the other thing is, the older you get, the more disconnected you get from those memories. I had to call up guys in my squadron. Hey, do you remember that deployment? Did, did we go here? Did we do that? You know, I, I couldn't remember some of the ins and outs. And, and so as I got older, I, I wanted to make sure that I wrote it down. Yeah, I loved Amy's book, and I loved all of the reflection in it and the way that it was such a stock take of what she's done in life so far, some of what she's done, right? Because she's you, you can't possibly capture everything in a life in one book, but it's a, it's a beautiful book and a really interesting read. And it struck me the whole time, like, Amy's young, and, mm-hmm. the, and the, the night is young for Amy. Like, there's so much more that I think she will do in her life, and so I I it caused me to think a lot about how we document where we are at different moments in time and what we know when we do that documentation. In some ways, the best time capsule that I have, like for my kids, is this podcast. And I think about how much we've shifted and changed and thought differently throughout the life of making the podcast. And I really appreciate the podcast because we get that opportunity to shift and change and explain it and just continue on in the learning process. A book feels so final. And I loved her answer on like, I feel like I've written that part of the story and now I live into the next part of the story. But it just made me think a lot about the ways that we tell our own stories and when we do that and how what comes after affects the way we look back at those earlier moments. Well, I was really struck because her answer was exactly what Brandy Carlisle says at the end of her memoir, which we listened to while we were on vacation. She says, everybody should do this. Everybody should write down their own story. And I think we speak a lot on this podcast about integration and flourishing. And I think putting together that narrative of your own life is such a powerful exercise in integrating and flourishing. You know, I spend a lot of time documenting my family's lives. I've always been a journaler and a scrapbooker. I take lots of photos. Part of it is because I don't have a great memory. I think it's because 
I, uh, for better or for worse, really live in the present moment. I don't spend a lot of time obsessing about future plans, and I don't spend almost any time thinking about the past or, like, sort of regretting what happened. The The downside of that is, like, so often my friends will say, like, remember this happened? And I'm like, no. It's even got to the point my husband and I have been married so long. Often he'll say, remember this? And I'll say, nope, don't remember it at all. Luckily, I have lots of pictures and lots of journals and lots of albums to sort of refresh those memories and capture those like really beautiful moments because time goes so fast. And, you know, I also think putting together those, you know, memory keeping, telling that story, especially writing a memoir, I think it encourages you to see your own growth and it encourages you to see how stories maybe you're still telling yourself are no longer relevant. You know, I think that's what happens with milestone birthdays. I hear so many women say, oh, you're going to love your 40s. That's when I stopped caring what other people thought about me. And sometimes I thought, I think, well, it wasn't that I needed to abandon what other people thought of me. I needed to abandon what I thought about myself. You know, I had so many years when I was a mother of young kids and I was side hustling. And about a year and a half ago, I had to look around and realize, like, that was no longer my reality. It was such an impactful time on my life. I was holding that narrative really tightly, but that was not reflected of the reality of my parenting and certainly not reflective of the reality of our work here at Pansy Politics. It is not been a side hustle for a very long time, but I was still sort of, I had this narrative in my head that like I needed to spend moments working on like real stuff or I don't know, like I needed to be working on something else all the time just because I'd always been working on four or five things at a time. And I didn't have a lot of experience recently with like just working on one thing. And, you know, just just looking at those stories and realizing like, especially your story and realizing like, oh, it's not, that's not the reality of my life anymore. And this is what I gained from it. And this is how I'm stronger because of it. And now I'm in this new phase. And I think, you know, hearing Amy, especially because her challenges are so defined, right? It's like, get into the college, pass the flight test, become a Marine and like, watching all these different challenges that she succeeded at and then having two electoral challenges that she did not succeed at and like integrating all that into her story of herself. I just think that's an incredibly powerful exercise. I think they're probably both right, her and Brandy Carlisle. I mean, who would disagree with Amy McGrath and Brandy Carlisle? Like we should all write our stories. I was really struck by the accounts of her failures in the book, especially like the the personal kind of embarrassing stories that she needn't have told, right? She mm-hmm. could have easily written this account of her life without talking about the time that she drank uh, against the rules with her soccer team in the Marines mm-hmm. and got in trouble for it. She could have easily omitted that. And I was thinking, I bet it felt really good to let this go. Like, writing this down in your memoir must have that sense of, like, writing it on a piece of paper and burning it and throwing it in the ocean or whatever. Like, I feel like there's that release of shame from it. Okay, this is a thing that happened, and I fully acknowledge that it happened and that it is not uh, in any way a detraction from all of the good that has happened in my life. I don't know. I just thought there were some really... powerful examples in the writing of a memoir in this particular book of letting some things go and having some moments of like forgiveness with yourself. Seems like having moments of forgiveness is relevant for not only this conversation, but honestly, every conversation we've had on this episode today. We are so thankful always that you join us and participate in this emotional processing of what's going on in our communities and in our country and around the world. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We will be back in your ears on Friday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. 
Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. David McWilliams. Jared Minson. Emily Neasley. Danny Osmond. The Hessians! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Karen True. Amy Whited. Emily Holliday. Katie Steigers. Melinda Johnston. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless. Paula Bremer. And Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can also connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and follow us on Instagram at pantsuitpolitics. Oh, right in time for the doorbell. I have for outside for... politics. Oh, sorry. Go, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I, che- I checked my email while you were telling them that. I have four emails titled, a message on mask requirements from the superintendent. Oh, <laughs> Bless everyone's hearts. Good grief. Okay, sorry.